You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S. has charged a former CIA engineer in the WikiLeaks Vault 7 case. Olympic Destroyer may be back and preparing to hit chemical weapons investigators and arms control specialists. Updates on the Liberty Life data extortion investigation. Elon Musk says Tesla Motors has an internal saboteur. The U.S. Senate snatches the lifeline out of ZTE's hands. A guilty plea in OPM breach-related fraud. And a possible motive in the Jeopardy champs email hacking. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 19, 2018. The U.S. Justice Department yesterday announced that it has charged Joshua Adam Schulte with, quote, unauthorized disclosure of classified information and other offenses relating to the theft of classified material, end quote, from the CIA. These charges have long been under preparation. Schulte was arrested in New York back in August of last year on charges related to child pornography. The FBI and the Department of Justice have since then been preparing a case against him in the matter of WikiLeaks' Vault 7, a public dump of alleged CIA documents by Julian Assange's gadfly operation. Schulte is alleged to be the source, or at least a major source, of Vault 7's contents. The defendant's careless search for and online communications about illicit pornography are thought to have constituted the OPSEC mistakes that led federal agents to him in the first place. A federal grand jury issued the superseding indictment, superseding the original child pornography charges, that included 13 counts. The government believes Schulte's alleged theft of classified information occurred in 2016. WikiLeaks dumped Vault 7 online in 2017. Olympic Destroyer, the threat group responsible for disruption of digital aspects of this past winter's Pyeongchang Olympic Games, is apparently back. Kaspersky Lab is tracking activity that looks very much like Olympic Destroyers against organizations associated with chemical and biological weapons control. Targets in Germany, France, Switzerland, Russia, and Ukraine are said to have been spearfished. One of the malicious word files found among the attachments in the spearfishing emails make reference to the Spitz Convergence 2018, a conference in Switzerland organized by the Spitz Laboratory and scheduled for this coming September. The conference will assess new biological developments and their, quote, potential implications for chemical and biological arms control, end quote. 
The evidence for Olympic destroyers' renewed activity lies principally in the obfuscation and spearfishing macros the recent attacks have employed. Kaspersky, as is its custom, offers no attribution, but it did comment that the techniques are similar to those used by Sophocy, a threat group associated with Russia's GRU. U.S. officials concluded in February that Olympic destroyer was a Russian operation cloaked by false flags intended to divert suspicion toward North Korea. Russia had resented the exclusion of its Olympic team from the Winter Games on grounds of illicit doping. This time, the resentment appears to be rooted in a different sort of chemical activity. The nerve agent attack in Salisbury, England, against an exchanged GRU double agent and his daughter, and various chemical attacks by Russia's client Assad against rebel and less-than-perfectly-loyal civilian populations in Syria. Russia has objected strongly to investigations linking it to these incidents, and the Spitz Laboratory played a significant role in attribution of the Salisbury nerve agent attack to Russia. Moscow claimed, to almost universal skepticism, that the attack was a British-American provocation, aided and abetted by the Czech government, which Russian sources said provided the Novichok agent used in the attempted assassinations. This latest spearfishing round appears to be battlespace preparation. The attacks are complex. Some of the targets are clearly connected with chemical and biological arms control, but others are not only unrelated, that is, their banks, but also Russian, Russian banks. This is probably misdirection. There's no reason an early-stage reconnaissance and staging would have to develop into a damaging attack, so Russian banks may not in fact be at realistic risk. And even if they were, there's a historical willingness to break eggs in the making of omelets that goes back very far in Russia, through Stalin and Lenin, and back to Father Gapone. Another set of meetings will also be worth watching in this context. The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, will, at the request of the United Kingdom, hold a special session of the Conference of the State Parties on June 26th and 27th. It's expected to address the non-attribution problem surrounding chemical weapon use, and in particular to be a forum at which the UK and other states will forcefully bring up both Salisbury and Syria. This is only the fourth special session of the OPCW in its two-decade history. OPCW should look to its emails. Many of us believe it's important to give back to the InfoSec community, and of course there are a variety of ways to do that. Lenny Zeltzer is VP of Product Management at Minerva Labs and an instructor and author at Sands Institute. He's put together a collection of free cheat sheets for IT and security professionals. Here's Lenny Zeltzer. The first one that I created, I believe, was uh, the one called Malware Analysis and Reverse Engineering Cheat Sheet. There's a wide variety here, everything from... uh Uh, Tips for creating and managing new IT products to a critical log review checklist for security incidents. And uh, one of my personal favorites, uh, how to suck at information security. (laughs) Yes, we could all use a little bit of advice on how to suck at information security if we're into the idea that a reverse psychology is something that might actually work in persuading others to pay more attention to information and cybersecurity. Yeah, I wrote that one, as you would expect, with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek attitude. But it's it's one that's been getting quite a bit of attention because, you know, when you work in, in cybersecurity, there's always some practice that you have witnessed that really annoys you and you wish you could share with others what not to do. 
Why don't we dig in? Uh, can you share uh, a couple of the, uh, the the suggestions here for uh, for how to suck? So here's uh, some uh, advice related to password management. Uh, require your users to change passwords too frequently. Mm. You know, it's one of those things where it feels inherently like a good thing for security. Hey, let's change passwords all the time, once a week, once a month, or once a quarter. But of course, those of us who've been doing this for a while realize that that simply encourages people to peak to pick passwords that are easy to guess. So that's that's one. Or um, another advice, delete uh, logs because they're becoming too big to read. Yeah, just get rid of those logs. I'm sure you won't need them. Or classify all of your data assets as being highly confidential or top secret. You know, it's one of those uh, tactics where if you're moving and packaging your stuff into boxes, if you label everything fragile, that just means nothing is fragile. And those of us in the security space who want to be extra cautious with information, if we label everything top secret or highly confidential, then people start paying attention because, well, if everything is confidential, top secret, then how do you apply security practices uh, differently to data that maybe doesn't require as much protection? Why is it important for you to put this out there and, and encourage the sharing of it? I appreciate the fact that everybody has their own spin on advising people in relation to IT or information security practices. You know, I shared with others what I feel is important, but I also recognize that somebody else might have different advice, might want to add or or modify or remove some of the uh, tips that I've shared in my cheat sheets. So that's one of the key reasons why I licensed these cheat sheets using the Creative Commons attribution license, which means people can take these cheat sheets and use them in any way that they want, as long as they attribute the source of the original cheat sheet to to me, the author. And uh, I make these available, not just on my website, uh, but also as uh, files that people can download in a PDF format, or perhaps most usefully in Microsoft Word format. And when people do that, I would encourage them to try to stick by the self-imposed limit that I defined, well, just for myself and others might might disagree, but in most cases, my goal is to fit everything in the cheat sheet on a single page. And I believe by trying to limit the space in which I can offer advice forces me to be really selective and succinct about what it is I'm trying to, to say. That's Lenny Zeltzer. You can find all of his cheat sheets at zeltzer.com slash cheat dash sheets. Observers speculate that Liberty Life may have been the victim of a malicious insider. The South African insurance company disclosed Saturday that it was undergoing extortion by criminals who threatened to release sensitive client data if they weren't paid their ransom demands. Another malicious insider may be behind sabotage, including deliberately bad coding and data theft at Tesla, or so Elon Musk believes. The founder of Tesla, SpaceX, and The Boring Company has sent a company-wide email to everybody in which he said, quote, I was dismayed to learn this weekend about a Tesla employee who had conducted quite extensive and damaging sabotage to our operations. This included making direct code changes to the Tesla manufacturing operating system under false usernames and exporting large amounts of highly sensitive Tesla data to unknown third parties, End quote. The story is developing. The U.S. Senate voted yesterday to revoke the lifeline the administration had extended to ZTE. Huawei appears to be in congressional crosshairs as well. Both Chinese companies are widely suspected by Five Eyes Security Services to be too cozy with Chinese intelligence. 
ZTE's stock price plummeted 25% upon the news. If you wondered what all that personal information stolen from the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, that's OPM, was used for, here's a partial answer. Carvia Cross of Bowie, Maryland, pleaded guilty yesterday to using PII stolen from OPM to get fraudulent personal and vehicle loans from the Langley Federal Credit Union. Her co-defendant, one Marlon McKnight, pleaded guilty earlier this month. There's, of course, no suggestion that Ms. Cross or Mr. McKnight were the hackers who pwned OPM, but they certainly found a use for the data that's spattered out. And finally, to return one last time to the case of Jeopardy! champion and sometime college history professor Stephanie Jask, convicted of illicitly accessing email accounts at Adrian College, you may have wondered what she was up to. According to a fellow faculty member, whom Jask told about her caper, Jask took advantage of a campus-wide password reset to, in her former colleague's opinion, scan email accounts for blackmail material. Sentencing is scheduled for next month. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Joining me once again is David DeFore. He's Vice President of Engineering and Cybersecurity at WebRoot. David, welcome back. Uh, you know, the GDPR deadline has come and gone. thought it'd be good to check in with you to see what kind of things you're seeing on the ground, what effect it's had on your customers. What can you share with us? Hey, David. First of all, thanks for having me back. Um, you know, GDPR, everybody talked about it. I think every, everybody kind of thought the, the world... Uh, was going to come to an end or the sky was falling. But but I think we've, we're rolling into it and we're just now starting to see um, implications of what's going on with GDPR, how it's going to affect us. Last week, I, I was in um, London 
There, there's a report of a, a mobile carrier there who had a data leakage and they immediately, when they found out about it, reported it publicly. And so that's one positive effect of GDPR is we're seeing people reporting issues very quickly now um, when they occur. I personally was nervous for this company because I, I don't know what their fine is going to be or how that's going to play out. But but some positive things that we're seeing are organizations knowing they need to report this quicker and there's going to be a lot more leniency as they make those reportings um, as soon as possible. Now, what are you seeing in terms of impact on U.S. companies? Organizations that have high visibility to Europe, um, and, and I'm going to include ourselves into that with offices over there. We spend a ton of time looking at our data, looking at you know where we store information, putting processes in place, and 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 we actually had an internal initiative to be ready for GDPR because uh, effectively we have offices over there, and we knew it would directly have implications for us. But what I'm seeing in general is is a lot of organizations in the United States who maybe run data centers in the states, but have exposure to sales or off or you know things customers in Europe. They're, they're maybe not as prepared as they should be. So so I guess what I'm summarizing there is if people with boots on the ground in Europe really do feel it, and and people in the states they're being a little bit more not as worried about it because it's so far away. Yeah, it was remarkable to me that even as we approached the deadline for it, it wasn't that unusual for me to come across someone who who is in this industry and would say, I'm sorry, GDPR, what is that? That is a little bit scary. I hope most people know know about GDPR, but you're absolutely right. You know, the, the confidence level seems to be high. You know, we've done some surveys. We've looked into, um, you know, how people were addressing this from a cybersecurity perspective. And confidence levels seem to be high in terms of people's belief they're prepared. But once we started drilling down into what would you do if you have to um, – identify the data you collect for a customer or what would you do if you had to um, get rid of information um, on a specific customer because they contacted you and wanted that data removed um, they couldn't get you know very specific about how they would handle those types of scenarios so not being able to answer those questions implies to me that a lot of organizations in the u.s maybe aren't quite as prepared as they should be and, and their plan is to have contact points, have the ability for someone to communicate with them about it, but kind of fill in the gaps as they go along on their processes. Now, do you sense that folks are still sort of holding their breath to see what happens once the fines start happening? Absolutely believe that. And, and on some level, David, I, I can't fault organizations, especially smaller um, companies, because it's so expensive to try to prepare for something and not know exactly what you're trying to prepare for. So there's a little bit of hope that I, if I can kind of fly under the radar, I can see what's going to happen legally with the larger organizations and then trend my processes or, or the things that I need to do in that direction. But you are taking somewhat of a risk in that because if you have a data breach and you have data from Europe, and it becomes, you know, popular in the media, it could be game over for you. Right. All right. Well, we're going to keep an eye on it, of course. David DeFore, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers... 
Banta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.